Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego reaches the sad milestone of more than 1,000 COVID deaths. I, I think we've all become a little numb uh, as this, this number just keeps going up and up. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. With vaccine approval getting closer and closer, we'll hear why new COVID vaccine trials are still moving forward. It would be nearly impossible for one pharmaceutical company to generate enough doses of vaccine to vaccinate the U.S., let alone the world. And a preview of tonight's KPBS Community Conversation on Keeping Our Democracy. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego has now lost 1,000 people to COVID-19. The profiles of the COVID victims show them to be our neighbors, friends, or tragically, our family members. Some are people who died too soon, often in their 40s and 50s. Others had their last years taken from them by this cruel and incurable disease. It was only about nine months ago that the first San Diego resident to die of COVID-19 made headlines. Now with more than a thousand dead, we're left to wonder how many more will be lost before the virus is controlled. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune health reporter Paul Sisson. And Paul, welcome. Thank you for having me. It may have seemed unbelievable back in March when we heard about the first death that we'd finally reached this point. Remind us how San Diego received news of that first COVID victim. Uh, going back in time, as you may recall, the, the first death happened on March 22nd 
Uh, it was a man in his 70s who actually didn't die in San Diego County. He actually died in a Santa Clara hospital, and uh, there was, you know, a whole big debate after that about whether whether that death should count for San Diego or not. And uh, and and so that's how we started out with uh, with our first death, uh, a San Diego County resident who actually wasn't here when he died. And it made headlines at the time. It's been a long time since since a COVID death made headlines. Right. I mean, you know, we've we've uh, certainly been covering the deaths. Everybody has uh, in in the media, and people have still been paying attention. But it just hasn't quite. I, I think we've all become a little numb uh, as this this number just keeps going up and up. I think we, uh, you know, have just become used to the, this uh, you know hundred after hundred after hundred more deaths uh, associated with with the novel coronavirus. Now, back in the summertime, it looked like things were slowing down a little bit. Have uh, the, has the actual death rate in the county slowed? Yes, it does look like it has. Uh, you know, we did a month-by-month analysis yesterday, and, and uh, I, I think that you know, the, the most deadly month that we've had so far was still back in July, uh, and, and we haven't had quite as many in recent months as we were having. Uh, I, w- I was talking to uh, some folks at the Hospital Association, uh, you know, about why that is, and, and really the thought, that there are two main reasons, the first being that overall the, the, the people who are getting infected with this uh, virus are younger, maybe in their 20s, maybe in their 30s, uh, more often than they were in the, in the early going. Uh, and as we know, this, uh, this disease is significantly more deadly uh, the older you are. Uh, and then the second main reason is that they've gotten better over time at treating patients uh, who get into severe respiratory distress and end up hospitalized. Uh, we've seen the overall length of hospital stay uh, cut roughly in half. Do we know the person who actually was the 1,000th victim in San Diego? Uh, we don't quite know. Um, that's, that's a situation that is a little confusing for people. Uh, you know, it can take days or even weeks in some cases for them to issue death certificates. Uh, After people die, uh, they might do a little investigation to determine what the exact cause of death actually was when they look at the medical records that were associated with each person. Uh, And so the the county does not tell the public about COVID-related deaths until it has uh, an actual death certificate, uh, you know, it receives an actual death certificate. Uh, And so it is always the case that when we hear about new deaths, they actually happened sometime in the past. And so uh, the thousandth death death on the county's list at the moment actually is a a man who died back on November 24th. Uh, And so it is probably going to be the case that uh, as we move forward in time, we will see some more deaths that actually occurred before that date. So the thousandth death will probably change a few more times before it, uh, you know, it's far enough in the past that, that we aren't getting any more deaths that precede that date. We often talk about COVID deaths in terms of statistics by age or ethnicity, but the Union Tribune has over the months profiled the life stories of many San Diegans who died from COVID. Why did the paper start doing that? You know, we just really wanted to put a human face on these numbers. Um, you know, it, like I said, uh, you see these numbers go up and up, and you can become a little numb to it, and you can forget, uh, I, I suppose, that these are human beings who each have their own life story and who who deserve to have some acknowledgement of, you know, who they were and, and how they died. And, uh, and uh, you know, these are our neighbors. These are our family members. And we just kind of felt like they really deserved some sort of tribute. 
Yeah, the stories you told us about the lives of the people we've lost are social workers, single mothers, teachers, naval officers, athletes, and many, many elderly people who died without family or friends in attendance. Can you share maybe one or two of those stories with us? Uh, you know, our, one of our uh, great writers, Gary Worth, has really been doing a lot of these for us. Uh, one that struck me was a, was a woman named Blanca Ramirez, uh, who he just recently wrote about. Blanca was an Imperial Beach resident, and uh, her daughter, uh, Brianna uh, Romo, told us about her. Uh, she died on September 7th at age 55 uh, after contracting COVID-19 in July. And uh, we, we learned that she actually had an auto, autoimmune disease, disease called lupus uh, that really uh, contributed to you know, her susceptibility to this virus. And, and it just kind of brought home for me that you know, this, this uh, is our society's duty to protect these folks uh, who have these conditions that they can't control. Uh, and so you know, that, that really definitely hit home with me. Now, you've covered San Diego hospitals and healthcare workers throughout the pandemic. I'm wondering, how has this high death toll affected those people who are closest to the patients? You know, it started with them being very nervous, uh, you know, the folks that I've talked to anyway, about going home to their families and protecting their families and being being able to understand whether or not they could actually trust the protective gear that they wear uh, when they're working at the bedside with people. And, you know, I think over time, Generally, folks tell me that they've they've come to trust their gear and they've come to trust that it works, and they're they're a little less nervous about going home at the end of the shift as long as they take the right precautions. But it's just a grind to keep seeing these uh, types of uh, of medical consequences for people day after day, week after week, month after month. Um, I talked to a lot of executives recently at a, at a lot of our um, local uh, health systems who say that they are just really afraid that they're critical workers, the people on the front lines, the respiratory therapists, the uh, critical care nurses, uh, you know, those types of folks uh, who have their hands on patients are just getting burnt out. They, they've just been doing this for so many months in a row now that, you know, just as this new wave arrives, uh, they're, just, they're just getting burnt out. So that, that is a scary thing to think about. Right. You talk about the new wave. Uh, our numbers of newly diagnosed COVID patients are now extremely high, over a thousand a day. Have you heard any estimates on how high the death toll could reach in San Diego? You know, I really haven't. The local public health department and, and state and, uh, and, and even uh, wider reaching uh, national uh, resources really don't seem to want to go there. Uh, it, it feels a little bit like they just don't, uh, don't see a lot of, um, a lot of margin in, in talking about that something that's just so grim. But certainly, you know, we, we can expect the rate of death to increase as we see the rate of infection increase. Even if even if this is uh, less deadly than it was, we're just seeing so many more infections than we were a few months ago that we certainly can expect the overall number of deaths to increase. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune health reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. 
This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. California is expected to receive a limited 327,000 doses of an emergency authorized COVID-19 vaccine. Pfizer could be the first one approved later this month, but KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento tells us that first vaccine can complicate the search for the best vaccine. It's a lot of paperwork to be a human test subject. A nurse hands multiple forms to volunteer Christian Reimers. The papers are the final steps before Reimers joins an experimental COVID-19 vaccine study with Janssen Pharmaceuticals. The company is part of Johnson & Johnson. If you were to get sick, would you allow us to get that information? The nurse's disposable gown rustles each time she explains what Reimers is signing. After a few pages, Reimers needs a new pen. He also answers a series of questions that has the nurse scribbling down too. And then what is your ethnicity? I am Hispanic, white. The process to join a COVID-19 vaccine trial is not only lengthy, but also invasive. I was going to, I have to ask some uh, confidential questions. Okay. In a follow-up interview, Reimers, a community clinic physician, says he endured it all to help fight the pandemic and skepticism around a vaccine. And there's a lot of suspicion and fear, and that's based in historical injustices, really, from biomedical research. And so, um, you know, I wanted to really take a proactive stance against that. But the personal gain is uncertain. Raymers doesn't know whether he received the vaccine or a placebo. Researchers don't know either. It's called a double blind and protects the integrity of the study. But volunteers can drop out at any point, and researchers worry the first emergency-approved vaccine may give them just the reason. Some, something people should know about clinical trials is it's always the participants' uh, uh, rights to pull out of the trial if they want to. Doctors like Reimers would be prioritized to receive an emergency-approved vaccine. And so that's a key consideration for me, is that if I have a, the ability to get a vaccine that's approved and I, I get in line because I'm a healthcare provider, you always have the ability to pull out of the vaccine trial. UC San Diego Health's Susan Little is overseeing the local trial for Janssen as well as for AstraZeneca. They require enrolling hundreds to thousands of volunteers. AstraZeneca study, we're hoping to put closer to 750, and the uh, Janssen study, we're uh, quite a bit ambitious. We're trying to put 2,000 on. Plus tens of thousands of others elsewhere. But she's worried another vaccine receiving emergency use approval could push some people out. That would jeopardize long-term data collection needed to produce multiple vaccines. It would be nearly impossible for one pharmaceutical company to generate enough doses of vaccine to vaccinate the U.S., let alone the world. And she says many volunteers may not even be eligible for the initial doses that will likely be in short supply even among priority groups. But she also says COVID is a public health emergency that demands an urgent response. With the epidemic raging the way it is, we need vaccines as fast as possible for as many people as possible. So we're in a very difficult catch-22 position here. Little says she's already planning how to talk to participants once the first emergency authorization is granted, which could be later this month. We might advise our participants that really, if you were to wait until February, you could evaluate this vaccine study that you're on to see if it was better. Janssen's is a one-dose vaccine, while Pfizer's requires two injections. 
FDA guidelines say it does not consider an emergency-approved vaccine as a reason to tell participants if they received a placebo. But a leading bioethicist from NYU says participants have a right to know under such circumstances. Raymer says he hopes he's in the vaccine arm of the Janssen trial. But I did get a sore arm. Um, and so, you know, fingers crossed that it was the vaccine. But that's the idea of going in is that you have to be willing to take a placebo for the sake of the science. Still, he plans to review data from an emergency approved vaccine before making up his mind. But Janssen told KPBS they'll notify participants about eligibility for an emergency approved vaccine. The company said volunteers can use that info to continue as is or seek to be unblinded. Joining me is KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. And Taryn, welcome. Thanks, Maureen. Hi. Hi. Now, your report focuses on people who are involved in ongoing clinical trials here in San Diego for a COVID-19 vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. But that is obviously not the first vaccine that's coming out. So why do we need more than one vaccine? Right. We know that an FDA advisory committee is going to review an application from Pfizer for uh, emergency use. And then shortly after that, it should be Moderna. Um, And the short answer is just the volume of needed doses. You know, Susan Little is leading some of the local trials at UC San Diego. and, And she pointed out that just one company can't manufacture all the doses that would eventually be needed. So Multiple producers would get us closer to the mass quantities um, we'll need, not just here in the U.S., but worldwide. Yeah, well, well, I'm going to ask the other question then. Why not just concentrate on producing huge volumes of those vaccines and let these other trials go if indeed Pfizer and Moderna vaccine are as effective as they say they are? Right. You know, But each vaccine is slightly different. So Moderna and Pfizer are using messenger RNA. It's not the actual virus. It just kind of communicates uh, to your body how to respond to the virus. So it produces that defense that hopefully it remembers um, when it comes in contact with the virus. And initial uh, data shows that, you know, for at least the two months after you get your final dose, it does remember and can mount a response to the virus. Um, But we haven't used an RNA vaccine before. You know, so how long does it last beyond that two months? Um, You know, early data does say that that's the period, but we can't determine if it lasts longer until we give it the time to see those longer results. We got to keep studying it, but we want to take multiple approaches at the same time as we continue to wait for that time to pass. You know, and another thing is that Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are two dose. And as I mentioned in the story, Janssen's, which is the pharmaceutical company with Johnson & Johnson, is one dose. It's easier to give people one dose than making sure they come back three to four weeks later for that second dose. And we could see that, you know, some people of certain demographics may respond better to one type of vaccine um, than than the other. So the greater variety of options that we have, the better we can meet the public's needs. Okay, so we keep hearing about 20 million doses of a vaccine potentially ready to go by the end of this year. But when it breaks down how much San Diego might get, you do the math and it might only be enough for about 12,000 people here. You did an interview with San Diego's public health officials. How are they getting ready to prioritize who gets the vaccine? Right. And so our friends at UT San Diego did some of the math that you just mentioned. Um, And in my interview um, with uh, Health and Human Services Agency Director Nick Maschione and County Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten, you know, they said that they're looking at state and federal guidance. They're these playbooks that the state has put out and CDC has put out and has a long list of critical populations that they should identify in the county and provide an estimate of of how many in our region. Um, You know, we know that an advisory group um, just recommended health care workers and long 
long-term care facility residents be a part of the first phase, which is which is known as 1A. You know, the second half is known as 1B, which could be people with two or more underlying conditions and older people. You know, and Dr. Wooten said, when you look at those two phases together, 1A and 1B, that represents about 75% of our county's population. And I did talk to Dr. Wooten before the CDC made that detailed recommendation about long-term care facility residents. So it may be slightly more or less than 75% under those guidelines, um, which still need to be formally approved by the CDC director. But that gives you an idea just of how many people really are considered priority. So the county is talking about how they have to prioritize the priorities, identify subsets within, within these groups. I mean, just with healthcare workers, are we talking only about doctors or nurses, only ICU nurses, only ER doctors, only those in hospitals? So they're identifying all those different possibilities now and where they are so they can distribute it appropriately based on whatever volume of doses happen to come our way. Um, The governor said we should get about 327,000 doses, and the math that UT did shows it could vaccinate 12,000 people in San Diego. Um, But I'm not certain if it'll just be distributed by priority population volume. The state guidelines did say they're also looking at areas that have a high burden of disease, and that may shift their response with vaccine distribution. Okay, here's a practical question. If if you are among one of the first in line for an emergency authorized vaccine, where do you get it? I mean, you probably don't go to your local drugstore, right? Right. To preface all this, I should say, like, there's a lot we don't know. I'm sure the public is just tired of hearing that response. So there's a lot we don't really know. So we're just planning for a variety of situations. But, if, you know, eventually the vaccine should be at a pharmacy. The federal government has said they made agreements with pharmacy chains. You know, but early on, it'll probably go directly to the locations where these priority populations are if they have the storage abilities to keep it as cold as it needs to be. So hospitals, skilled nursing facilities and you know, these providers are working with with our county to apply to the state and onto the CDC to get certain allocations. And Director Mascione, you know, he, again, the director of the county's Health and Human Services Agency, said the overall plan is to use, you know, the medical facilities that already serve as uh, sites for other vaccinations. But on top of that, as we continue to expand and more people, um, you know, could be approved to get the vaccine, you know, just They'll be at public health centers, perhaps even at one day pop up sites like they have for for flu shots um, and even at maybe at covid testing sites um, because the county is providing some flu shots at covid testing sites. Um, So the resources are all in one location. And so uh, Director Mescione and Dr. Wooten said the testing sites have been in locations that are accessible for hard to reach populations. So they want to build on that. Now, both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines Uh, They are, of course, at the head of the line for authorization. Both of those need double doses, as, as you mentioned, to be effective. So how do San Diego public health officials prepare to handle for that? So the key tool that they pointed to was the San Diego Immunization Registry. It documents who gets which vaccines, and it's it's usually used for childhood immunization schedules, but they said it'll be mandatory for COVID-19 vaccines. So that helps with making sure facilities are following up with the right people for that second dose. And when we do have multiple vaccines, confirming that people are getting the second dose of the correct one. So if you got Pfizer first, you need to get Pfizer second. 
um, and you can't get, you know, Pfizer and then Moderna because uh, we just don't have the research showing if, if that would work. Um, but, you know, Director Meschione and Dr. Wooten both said that they'll have to get people in the door in the first place because of skepticism around the, you know, the production of the vaccine. So they're working with community groups and leaders, including in our communities of color and, and refugee populations, to make sure that the message isn't just coming from health officials, but people that they, they may actually know on a personal level and, and have a better uh, trusting relationship with. And for people who actually got a vaccine in the clinical trial, is there a risk involved in getting another vaccine? That's a good question because we don't have the data. We haven't looked at um, that scenario. We just don't have the data to actually know. And that's, um, so, you know, maybe later on further studies will we'll be looking into that issue. But right now we know that Pfizer first and second dose, 95% efficacy and uh, very minimal side effects, you know, like I said in my story, something equivalent to, you know, what you may see after um, a flu shot, you know, Moderna, same thing. So like we haven't tested what happens if you get a Pfizer shot and then a Moderna shot. Um, what happens if you get, you know, the Janssen shot and then go to go back and get the Moderna shot. We just don't know yet. And so um, it's not recommended at all that you do that. So we would have to continue to, to study that and um, but focus on what the research already is telling us. You know, Taryn, there are headlines just today. Some people getting the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines, some of them come down with slight flu symptoms like aches and fevers. And why would that happen? You know, it, it's we've we, people see this with a flu shot. People sometimes after they get a flu shot, just the way that their body reacts, um, the way that their body is uh, preparing to mount its response. If it was being introduced into the you know fully blown virus, um, they sometimes have to take a day off of work and and recuperate before um, you know after they get it. And so, in a way, you know, seeing these moderate side effects could be a sign that the body is appropriately uh, responding to the vaccine and that it's it's triggering that reaction to prepare your body to defend the full-blown virus. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. And Taryn, thank you. A pleasure, Maureen. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. We are excited about a special event KPBS is producing online tonight along with the National Conflict Resolution Center. It's the latest in our series of community conversations. The topic for this post-election panel discussion, which I'm moderating, is timely and critical. Keeping our democracy, what now? I'll be questioning three San Diego political scientists and inviting your questions and online participation as well. Joining me now for a preview of our discussion is one of our panelists. Legina Goss is a professor of political science at UC San Diego. Welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
Multiple issues and trends arose during the 2020 election, which are still affecting our democracy. Let's start with the Black Lives Matter movement, manifested in massive protests here in San Diego and in cities across this nation this year. How important was that movement in the election? Black Lives Matter was a very important in the 2020 election. It didn't start this year. It started, uh, it was founded years ago in re- reaction to police br- brutality in a lots of different locations. But this year it was really important, especially during the pandemic, especially in light of uh, new videos and uh, stories of police shootings throughout the country. And in San Diego, it helped a lot of people to express their concerns and also organize and really be in community with people to talk about how issues were affecting them and also think about ways to get politics, politicians to represent their issues. So I think it framed a lot of people's understanding of how to think about politics and how to think about what this election meant to them in 2020. And in what ways does the treatment of Black Americans and other people of color affect our democracy? It must be profound. Yeah, it, it really is. When we think about democracy, democracy is supposed to, to represent everyone equally. And when you have people within a society who are consistently being victimized, consistently not being the winners in a democracy, it's not just an indictment on the way that those people are treated, but it's an indictment on, on our democracy as a whole. If entire populations of people aren't actively being able to participate, then the democracy itself isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. And in your view, what needs to happen to make our democracy what it aspires to be, a country where, quote, we the people means everyone? Part of it is really living up to that value of what we the people means and recognizing that democracy isn't just for certain populations. It isn't just for individuals, but it's for everyone. And uh, for us to live up to that really requires us to understand that to be American is a very diverse concept that's just not about uh kind of what we might understand as American, which typically tends to be associated with whiteness, but it also represents other groups who have been born and raised in this country, but even those who have come and naturalized into citizenship and and those who typically we may not think of as American, uh, including black populations who we talked about even in this conversation as being uh, unlikely to win representation uh, or uh, be receive justice as victims of crimes or even as perpetrators of crimes. Now, it's been said often that Americans are divided. That's maybe one thing we can all agree on. We see events through different lenses. Facts are not seen as facts by millions. Science is dismissed and lies and disinformation, including from the president of the United States, swirl around us daily. Why do you think this is happening and what can be done about it? I think a lot of it is just distrust in other people. We don't trust the people who are telling us things and and we don't trust the way that they think of ourselves. Uh, We don't trust that people believe that we're able to understand politics. So when people are telling us that you don't understand things, it makes them less likely to listen to those people as authorities, right? So a lot of it is, based, I think, in a lot of hurt and pain and a lot of distrust and miscommunication and misperceptions of people we don't understand because they're not active participants. Uh, They're not the people we interact with on a daily basis. So when we hear information from them, we discredit it, especially if that information isn't something that aligns with uh, conclusions that we really understand or things the, the way we think about society and the world. And how can we get to where we at least agree on what our goals are as a country? A lot of that, I think, is respect and trust. Uh, 
I don't know if it necessarily requires us to start by trying to agree on facts. I think it, it starts by us learning to respect each other and understand where we're coming from when we enter into these conversations. When we get there, we can start understanding or believing the things that people say to us because we believe their intentions to be true and honest and respectable. I want to let listeners know, I'll explain in a minute how you can join our event online tonight. But a final question for now, how big a threat to our democracy does this font of misinformation, the outright lies and false stories present? It's a huge threat to democracy. Like I said before, democracy requires us to not only be invested in our own rights and liberties being represented, but those of other people. But if we don't acknowledge other people, respect their right to be participants in a democracy, then the entire institution is threatened and crippled, and we can't make the necessary decisions uh, to move forward as a, as a country. I've been speaking with Legina Goss, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UC San Diego. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. It was great to be here. Our panel discussion and interactive session begins online at 6 this evening. To be a part of it, join us through KPBS's Facebook page or our YouTube account. You can find links at kpbs.org events. Community Conversations is a partnership of KPBS and the National Conflict Resolution Center made possible by Rady Children's Hospital Auxiliary and California State University San Marcos. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.